Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Are you interested in angels, demons, spirits, ghosts, and monsters? Are you curious about their origins, tales, and influence upon history and on the present day? If so, sit back, relax, and welcome to Southern Demonology, the podcast that explores all of this and more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the inaugural podcast of Southern Demonology, a show that will attempt to focus upon angelology, demonology, preternatural and supernatural activity from antiquity until the present day. My name is JJ and I welcome you and I'm very thrilled that you're with us. Uh, I hope that you enjoy it and uh, hope that we can have some interesting times together. So, what I said before uh, regarding what this show is going to be about was kind of a mouthful. So, I want to break that down just a little bit so everyone's aware of what you're getting yourselves into, which hopefully will be a good thing and not a negative one. Um, So, we're going to cover a wide range of topics. Um, everything from simple ghost stories to folk tales, uh, apocalypses, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, um, religious beliefs, and a whole host of other items. And we're going to do so from a couple of different perspectives. Um, first and foremost, it will be from an academic one. Um, that's what my background is in. Um, And I think that you can derive a whole host of interesting concepts from looking at things from the traditional point of view, but also from a rigorous, studious one. But in addition to that, we're also going to be looking at things from a spiritual perspective. But we're not going to contain ourselves to one religious tradition. So... On the upfront, just to be completely honest, um, when we're talking about angels and demons, of course, many different religions have that, and we will get to that. But when I'm referring to those two specific terms, they will be rooted within the Judeo-Christian traditions. However, we're not going to limit ourselves to that. For example... I am a gigantic uh, Nihongophile, a person who loves all things Japanese, 
and I have a severe interest in uh, yurei and yokai, um, ghosts and uh, monsters uh, from that particular tradition. So now that we've covered what we're going to be talking about within this series, I guess the next question is, who the heck am I, and why would you want to listen to anything I say about these particular topics? And it's a it's a good question. Um, so I'm going to kind of lead you through a uh, circuitous route in answering that, uh, give you uh, a bit of a story about my background, and hopefully you'll come to understand uh, a little bit about me and where I'm coming from. I'm not the biggest fan of talking about myself, so it might be a little uh, stop and start there, and I apologize for that, but um, I think it bears a lot upon why I'm doing this and where I'm coming from. So I am from the smallest town in the state of Tennessee, called Sladen. Uh, it's in the middle part of the state, underneath the shadow of the Cumberland Plateau, uh, it's about 113 people big. If uh, the U.S. actually used uh, designations for uh, hamlets and villages in addition to towns and cities, then it would definitely be a hamlet. Uh, the city has one intersection, um, a defunct restaurant and garage, in addition to a tiny little cement building uh, post office that might measure six by six if you're lucky, uh, and a community center with a tiny little Masonic lodge right in behind it. So we're not talking about a big area at all. Um, it the town came around in the early 1800s, uh, had a railroad, uh, kind of boomed at that time, and has since uh, that has uh, gone away uh, in recent years. It is a place that is filled with uh, clans, uh, so family uh, organizations uh, that are still kind of uh, led by a particular individual, usually a matriarch. Uh, for my family, that was my grandmother. Uh, it's also a place that is, of course, just geologically, I mean, geographically speaking, uh, it's in the heart of the Bible Belt, so... Uh, every half mile, you'll have a church. Uh, some of them are typical. Uh, most of them are not. Um, and in addition to that, you have tons of graveyards. And I think that's where we're going to start. I think uh, most, uh, a lot of my childhood memories come from being in a graveyard or having something to do with it just because they're so plentiful, and for a few other reasons as well that we'll get into. Uh, for example, when I was six years old, uh, my family decided to buy plots. So, uh, one day, most of my extended family, which is rather large, got together, uh, spray-painted our names on cement blocks, and then went to uh, the uh, closest church, held to uh, that's near us and planted them in the ground so even at that time I knew exactly where I was going to wind up once uh, I shuffled the mortar coil uh, in addition my grandmother great aunts and great uncle and I would all get together and mow um, 
another uh, cemetery that uh, houses where my uh, great grandma and great grandpa um, currently reside. And that's because the church that was uh, supposed to take care of it had neglected their responsibilities. Uh, I think it's mainly because no one wanted to pay for the upkeep. So my grandmother took that over so that um, her mom and dad would have a, a good place to be in. And I think that's kind of the overriding sentiment about where I came from. And I think part of that is just traditional, uh, but other parts I think have slowly evolved over time. Sladen is a place where the dead walk among us. And I mean that in both the metaphysical and the literal sense. Uh, the dead never leave us, and those that have passed away are still very vibrant to their descendants. Stories are told about people. I grew up hearing tales about my great-grandmother, great-grandfather, um, and even several generations past them. I know their names. I know their stories. They are a vibrant tapestry that make up my life. And even though I've never met most of these people, I still know about them. But it's also true in the literal sense. Our town is built upon Indian burial mounds. I have experienced quite a few paranormal activities. The house that I grew up in when up until when I was in eighth grade is a log cabin that has been around for over 200 years. It was first built way back in the holler and then it was uh, transported uh, log by log into where it currently rests today. And in that attic of that house, there is a presence there. I have felt it. I have seen its activities. And so has all my family. In fact, we affectionately call it Patrick. So I, I have gone into this not because I love hearing the sound of my own voice. In fact, I rather hate it, which has made uh, editing this thing quite kind of interesting. But um, it's to go over the kind of environment that I was brought up in. Um, ghost stories are a major part of the day. And I loved it. I loved every single thing about it. I would go to school and I would tell ghost stories. I was the storyteller for our entire class. It is something that has kind of uh, stuck with me uh, even to the present day. Uh, in high school, I, was, I went into a debate club. Um, and college, I was in theater and debate and model UN. And even now, I teach a class of a would-be... Uh, Lincoln-Douglas debaters, and so I, I love that oral tradition of storytelling. Uh, I think it also explains why in high school I wanted to go into cryptozoology, 
For those who don't know what that is, um, it is a field of study that attempts to unearth and uh, focus upon uh, creatures that have not been brought to modern science yet. Uh, that includes everything from Bigfoot to Yeti to the monster of Lake Okeechobee to Loch Ness to whatever else you may want to have, um, uh, such as like the New Jersey Devil. Um, all of these things um, are the some of the more exotic facets of cryptozoology, which is what it's really been defined as. But it also examines more mundane creatures, such as like um, King Puma or a couple of other items. But so that's that's exactly where I've come from. Um, I love uh, anything that is kind of out of the ordinary. And I think a lot of that is due exactly to how I was brought up. Fortunately, though, I kind of abandoned cryptozoology uh, early on. And uh, due to being exposed to debate, uh, actually went into college to study uh, philosophy and physics. Because, uh, uh, as I arrogantly claimed at the time, uh, I wanted to know about the physical and the metaphysical world around us. Uh, fortunately, or well, unfortunately, uh, as the case may be, I did not have much of a talent for math. Uh, I went through uh, calculus too and physics with calculus and realized that um, although I could do it, I had no great aptitude in it. And honestly, I feel that whatever career that a person is going to go into, they have to be spectacular at it. Or at least that's the bar that I set for myself. And so I abandoned physics early on and uh, picked up religion. And our religion department had three different tracks to it. Uh, there was walled religions. There was theological, uh, theological studies, and finally, you had uh, biblical studies. The one that interested me the least was biblical studies. The one, the, the first one that drew my attention was world religions. Now, I came from a tiny place. Uh, I went to a college, which was a tiny place in uh, South central Virginia uh, called Hampton Sydney College, which was an all-male institution of about a thousand people. And it was located directly next to a town called Farmville. Uh, just to give you any idea of the uh, small place, too small place that I relocated to. And I wanted to know more of the world around me. And I thought that world religions would be a great place to do that. And I was right. Um, you know, I got to study the basics of a lot of different items. Um, I really fell in love with Buddhism. Um, got to study underneath some phenomenal professors for that. So in our religion department, you had to pick a track that you really wanted to devote the majority of your time to in order to get a major. And... I, although I started off in world religions, theological studies also really uh, appealed to me. You know, I was already in philosophy, which I love and still do. So theological studies was a, a natural extension to that. You know, getting to look at Karl Barth and Paulus Tillich. Uh, it, you know, their words sang to my soul. 
but as fate would have it, the one area that I was not really interested in became the one that I actually got my major in, and that is biblical studies. And that's because one fateful day, while walking by the library, I saw a uh, sign-up sheet for Biblical Hebrew. And I don't know what fascinated me about that, but a, the professor I knew very well, Dr. Rogers, uh, an older gentleman, one of the most intelligent yet humble and gregarious individuals I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. So knowing that he was going to teach it was uh, definitely a plus, but it was much more than that. It was, I think part of it was a little bit of shock value. Some of it was um, the the alphabet was so new to me. But uh, for whatever reason, I latched on to that. And I took it. There were four of us in the class. And that led us to some really interesting avenues. Um, but from Biblical Hebrew, I got the chance to study uh, Gez. Gez is a really interesting language for a lot of reasons. Um, it is the liturgical language, still, of Ethiopia. Gez um, really is referred to in English as um, classical Ethiopic. It's, uh, it's pretty unique amongst uh, Semitic languages. Gez is a truly exceptional and difficult language for a couple of reasons. Um, First, the alphabet. It was taken from uh, Old South Arabian, which was a language we thought was mainly uh, used to inscribe um, uh, royal messages or proclamations into buildings. And some genius along the way, and I mean that in a, a literal sense, not in a sarcastic one, um, some truly advanced individual realized that reading the language may pose difficulties. And that's because in Semitic languages, you often do not get vowel pointings. So you'll get the consonants that are written, but you'll be lucky to know what the actual vowels are that go within that word. Uh, for example, in Hebrew, uh, if you happen to see something that looks like a uppercase T underneath the letter, then that is a long A. Uh, if you see something that looks like a semicolon underneath the letter, then that is a schwa, or a short or non-existent E. Um, and then you have the holum, which is like a point uh, that is um, over a, uh, in between two letters, and that's usually a, uh, that's a long O. Well, in uh, classical Ethiopic, they took a completely different route. Um, this uh, school or individual or whoever came up with it, they decided to morph every single letter uh, into a new shape based upon the vowel that came after it. Uh, so for every single letter, you have six different permutations. Uh, and it's 
it, it's, it's amazing. It's just absolutely fantastic. Um, but one of the, it, it was kind of rare to be able to get to study this language, uh, mainly because of the fact that very few people in the U.S. know it. And luckily, uh, Dr. Hall, who I chose to be my major professor at HSC, uh, he got to study the language underneath his uh, major professor at Duke, Dr. Wintermute. And uh, he began to teach me. And uh, I can honestly say I don't think there's ever been a case of, at least for me, of greater disorientation um, the first day I tried to read uh, a passage in the in, in the native script of Ge'ez. Um, the book that most people learn Ge'ez from is by uh, Thomas O. Lambden. Uh, o stands for Odin, which is the which is probably the most fantastic middle name I've ever heard. Um, but uh, Professor Lambden, um, he wrote the introduction to Ge'ez, and um, he's kind of a hero, and I'll try to go into a little bit of that as well. Um, but, but anyway, uh, you start off learning the language by looking at it in uh, romanization, so just using English letters. And the reason why is that, unlike Hebrew, you don't have a designation for when a letter should be doubled. Uh, and those are extremely important, especially when you're learning about uh, conjugation. Uh, like, for example, uh, if you want to say, you know, I love you, um, like the three-letter root is F-Q-R, Fekker. Um, but if you want to actually say, I love you, it would be, you know, e uh That Q is doubled. Um, and if you're just looking at the native strip, you can't tell that. Uh, so you get through the vast majority of the work learning the language in romanization and then suddenly all you have there comes a page in the book in which is completely typed and get in the native script and it when i went through that um i actually left the place the our um our religion department house. It was kind of like an old Victorian house, which was fantastic. Uh, but it had really narrow stairs. Um, almost fell down the stairs twice. Realized that I had put my pen in my pocket uh, without the cap on. So I had ink running all the way down my leg, walking back to my dorm room. Um, it, it was just one of the most disorientating things I've ever been through. Um, but regardless... Uh, Ethiopic is so uh, terrifically important from an academic standpoint because of the fact that the Ethiopic Orthodox Church has the largest collection of holy writings of any Christian denomination, or at least the ones that I'm aware of, especially from an Orthodox point of view. And that's because they hold holy a collection of texts that are known as the pseudepigrapha. Um, from Latin, that directly translates into false epitaphs. But they were a collection of works that was written in between uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament, um, in which people tried to answer questions 
that they had. Like, for example, in you know Genesis 6, you have all of us talk about the Nephilim, these giants. What were they? You know, were they part spirit? Were they all physical? Um, were they really the sons of angels? These are questions that rabbis um, and Christians have struggled with for a long time because the, the language that's in Genesis 6 is so bombastic that it's really difficult to know how to translate that, what, what it means. Uh, and so you had these writers that claimed to be uh, Enoch or another uh, a famous person from, from, uh, from the Masoretic text uh, in order to try to answer some of these theological questions from a very definitive standpoint. Um, so, um, these words captured my imagination. For example, you have First Enoch, which is a religious text that first advocates for a solar calendar over a lunar one. But that's probably the least interesting part, at least for me. The first part was actually the examination of exploration. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. ...of what the Nephilim are um, and how angels decided to bind themselves in a curse and actually copulate with the daughters of man because they found them so desirable and how they taught um, the generations of man uh, all of the forbidden and angelic uh, knowledge and secrets it was amazing, and not just Enoch, but Jubilees or uh, Tales of the Twelve Patriarchs. All of these items are amazing, and you know we had them preserved in classical Ethiopic. But later, we also found Enoch and Jubilees preserved within uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which taught us that these works were considered canonical. And the Dead Sea Scrolls is there's another whole chapter, um, especially some of my favorite passages like uh, 4Q, 5, 10, and 11. But needless to say, 
the pseudepigrapha really drew my attention, especially for how they treated um, the ideas of angels and demons and uh, really kind of broke them down and explored their natures, etc. And so when I finished college, I had a choice. I could either go uh, into philosophy for a master's or I could go into uh, continue my education within religion. And uh, luckily I was accepted into uh, Harvard Divinity School and that's where I went for a master's in theological studies. And there I got more of an opportunity to study these kinds of ideas and concepts. So uh, I guess on paper, my degree from there was really in Semitic philology and the pseudepigrapha. Uh, but truly, what I used the vast majority of my time there was to study um, angels and demons and um, the idea of chaos uh, and how they've been preserved. And the one thing that I kept running up against time and time and time again was how these ideals that were that came around within Second Temple Judaism around angels and demons they have been flash frozen in time and they still have a profound impact upon the present day. I don't think that you can talk about the concept of exorcism or the Roman rites without directly tracing all of those ideals to that time period between, you know, 150 BCE to 70 CE. It's what fascinates me. Um, it's what drove most of my work. Now, today, I am not in that uh, in those studies anymore. Uh, after graduate school, I had the choice of either pursuing a PhD, which would have been in most cases, another 10 to 12 years of my life and an infinite supply more of student loans, which I already still have more than enough of. Um, or I could go into what had captured my attention while I was also in college and grad school, and that was development. Um, so I've been in IT for the past 18 years. Uh, I'm now an architect, uh, senior, uh, technical lead, uh, overlook a fantastic group of developers and get to work on some really interesting problems. And But what still captures my heart and my attention are these tales, not just of angels and demons, but also the spiritual beliefs behind them, how they've been impacted, and how the current day is really still shaped by what happened so long ago in the past. So, 
that's kind of the really long-winded answer to that. But, um, so I am academically trained in this field. Um, but, I, I, you know, that's not really what draws me. You know, it's, it's this ideal of the strange or the unknowable and how they affect us in our current lives. I was taught to respect the mysteries of death from a very early age, and they still draw me in. So, it's, I guess it's that sense of mystery and wonderment of, uh, of spiritual depth and confoundment that I want to really explore within the series. And I want to hear what you have to say. If uh, any unlucky soul <laughs> happens to stumble upon this and uh, they're, you know, and you're interested in this as well, you know, bring up those ideals or concepts in which you want to hear us talk about and we'll do so. So now that we have discussed what we will be talking about and the reasons of why uh, we will be talking about it. The other aspect to this is I want to cover what we're not going to discuss um, in this podcast. Or if we do so, it will be in a very ancillary manner. So in the past few years, um, I've gotten into watching uh, various uh, YouTube channels uh, that will discuss uh, paranormal activity, found footage, uh, that kind of stuff. And though it's really interesting, um, it's also kind of heartbreaking. Uh, so if you take some of these channels like uh, Top 5 Mysteries or Unexplained Mysteries, they will, in a completely serious voice, they will discuss some facts and then they will turn around and ask absolutely ludicrous questions like, do you believe that this really is an alien conspiracy? Or do you believe this was an ancient civilization that was found uh, 50 million years ago? Or whatever they may bring up. Um, I'm not interested in conspiracy theories. Um, moreover, I'm not going to be going over like modern uses of magic. Whether it's um, uh, Wiccanism or whatever else it may be. And I'm not saying that those are not valid avenues of exploration. It's just um, those are not items in which I am particularly interested in. So uh, most of this will be from, you know, a, a ghost stories perspective or an academic perspective or something along those lines. But um, we're not really going to be delving into how can you cast uh, this kind of spell or, uh, you know, what... Uh, ancient civilization may have really been around, or what secrets do the governments uh, not really want you to know? Um, that's not the purpose of this whatsoever, um, and I'm not particularly interested in talking about those kinds of items. So um, I hope that doesn't disappoint too many of you out there, uh, but that's just not really my focus. So I, I apologize in advance if that's what you're really looking for.
So, now I want to wrap up this episode by talking a little bit more about grad school and Ethiopic uh, and some of the literature that is found within that particular tradition. So, uh, at Harvard, I got the chance to study under Dr. Hunegard, who, the man is utterly brilliant. Um, if he's not the top Semitic philologist in the world, then he is one of them. Uh, wrote the grammar for Assyrian, uh, knows probably about 30 to 40 uh, ancient languages, um, and goodness knows how many modern ones. Uh, Dr. Hunegard is also the spiritual inheritor of uh, Thomas Lambden, um, who you'll remember me talking about previously. But uh, yeah, Dr. Hunegard was Lambden's number one student and kind of took his place at Harvard. Um, I got to take continue my uh, uh, Ethiopian studies uh, with uh, Dr. Hunegard. And uh, in fact, in that class, I got to uh, study classical Ethiopic alongside the uh, patriarch of the uh, Ethiopian church, his brother, uh, Johan, who was a really nice guy. Um, it was a truly unique experience to be able to do that. We went through a lot of different items. Uh, he advised me a tremendous amount. Um, and I am always going to be grateful uh, for him and his teaching. Um, so, a little bit about the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And um, if I say anything incorrect, then please, people from that uh, persuasion, uh, feel free to correct me. But this is at least what I had gathered through my studies. So the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, it did um, inherit the ranks and titles of priests and nuns from the uh, Greek traditions. However, what it did not take from uh, Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy or other forms of Orthodoxy was its... Um, are those traditions underlying uh, basis, which is Aristotelian and Platonic logic. Um, and I think you can see that within uh, the works of, uh, of Augustine and Augustus. But the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, it takes more of a, a mystical approach to things uh, it so within that tradition it actually espouses that you know Christ Jesus uh, Christus Lotus uh, or praise be upon him Jesus Christ um, was not just the Savior but was also an incredibly powerful magician in his own right um, there is a fantastic book called uh, Kebra Negesht, the glory of the kings in which it uh, has many many tales in it but one that uh, is fascinating is one where Christ is walking along the sea of Galilee 
and a uh, demoness called Nadara rises from the waters and her eyes glow red and she rears her head back and blasts a cubit, I mean a, a column of flame, 136 cubits into the air. And Christ looks at her, waves his hands and utters an incantation and it banishes her back into the water which is beautiful it also maintains the kind of coherency of water uh, doubling as chaos and I, I hope to get into that maybe some next episode but this is not an uncommon kind of theme in a lot of um, of, uh, of Ethiopian literature and religious literature in particular in fact, the, what I really want to go into now is the concept of a Debtera. Uh, so Debtera are a specific class of priests, and they can have various responsibilities. Uh, for example, there is a, a beautiful tradition of singing within the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, um, and they're often called whispers, um, and there are like 29 different art forms of whispering. Uh, but Debtera are primarily known for inheriting and utilizing one of Christ's most powerful proclamations to his followers, which was that he gave power over demons to those who believe in him. And these priests take that to heart. They are known for creating scrolls that protect people and if that's where it ended that maybe it wouldn't be such a uh, such an interesting story but these priests they will they go through a very ritualized process of creating these types of scrolls um, they will sacrifice a lamb uh, or goat and um, ritualistically prepare its skin and then they will go off and they will capture a demon. And they do this in a variety of ways. Typically they will trick them um, by handing out um, eggs or something else, but they capture the power of demons and they put them into these scrolls. Uh, in fact, these scrolls, beautifully made, um, they actually utilize the Zoroastrian system of magic uh, which is found very commonly in a lot of practices in the Middle East but it uses red and black text so black will be the normal words but any holy or magical words will be typically written within red and they will capture these demons put them into these scrolls and they normally do so through some um iconography of angels but they also use the uh, seal of solomon uh, which is kind of like a grid um, in which you'll see these demonic eyes peering out uh, and these scrolls um, they can protect against various types of items but they always protect against other demons um, in fact one of the most common uses uh, usages of this 
uh, power is for protecting uh, pregnant women from various types of evils. These strolls typically start off with your standard prayer of Basima Ab Wewald Remanfas Kedusa Haru Emlok, which is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the One Lord. And then they will start naming off specific demons um, in which this scroll is meant to protect from, the wearer from. Um, one of them are called Shotalai, which are these this race of uh, baby-killing demons. Um, another one is within the Greek tradition, it's called Oribos, uh, but it, it, it's the twin, it's the two snakes that circle the world swallowing uh, their own tail it's to, to read these scrolls are it, they're absolutely fascinating um, I actually I, I now became acquainted with this tradition um, while I was still in grad school um, they a request had come in one day uh, to Mr. Cliff, who ran um, uh, most of the services at Andover Harvard Theological Library, for a uh, for a scholar who knew uh, Gaz, and Dr. Hunegard was way too busy, um, and Cliff himself, who knew Ethiopic, because he actually studied with Hunegard and were really good friends, um, he didn't have time, so he forwarded the request to me. And I got to uh, meet this lady, and what she was attempting to do was study these uh, Debtora scrolls uh, for her PhD dissertation. Uh, she was a uh, an art uh, art history major, and was trying to look at these scrolls from a healing perspective. And she forwarded quite a few uh, copies to me, uh, and I would spend. 8 to 12 hours a day in, uh, in the uh, GAS library translating these um, and then getting together with her and going through them, what they meant uh, and what their purposes were. Uh, in fact, I, uh, she even made arrangements to look at a collection of Debtura scrolls which are held uh, at uh, Howard University. So we went there together and were able to flip through these beautifully illustrated strolls, uh, which can be anywhere from you know a, a hundred to three hundred years old, all using a variety of uh, language. Some of these strolls were just completely made up, um, and other ones were. <sighs> Ethiopia is kind of interesting because it uses an entire variety of pluralization. So, just like Arabic, it has broken plurals uh, in typically six different patterns. Uh, but then, depending upon if something is an animal or an inanimate object, uh, you can have varieties of ways of uh, indicating that something is more than one. Um, the other interesting thing is that within Ethiopic, uh, so uh, early Ethiopia was conquered by the Cushitic people, and uh, Ethiopic had a lot of different guttural sounds. So it had your typical aleph, had your ayin, um, had your ha, ha, 
they actually had a third stronger ch along with uh, an s and sh sound and then a uh, hard um, s and then a, uh, a diphthong d which is kind of like a th all of those kind of faded away with, uh, under Cushitic influence. So you had now multiple letters that were being used to say the exact same sound um, because all of the other sounds faded away. So within Ethiopic, whenever you come across a word that has one of these gutturals, um, for example, if it was an H sound, if you didn't know that word, you have to go off and look for something that was a regular H, a the middle gear guttural, or the high guttural, uh, because they could be used interchangeably. Uh, spelling is really atrocious when looking through uh, classical Ethiopic literature. Um, but regardless, uh, my student, uh, I actually got to serve in her uh, PhD counsel uh, for being able to look over these types of scrolls. Uh, she actually went to Ethiopia and interacted with a lot of Debtura there. And the one thing that she found out that I wasn't aware of is that some Debtura live to a ripe old age. But... Deptera are typically talked about in hushed tones. In fact, when a Deptera dies, they're normally found in the most contorted of positions. Things that are almost borderline unnatural. Because even in the Ethiopic Orthodox Church, one may capture and have power over demons but one will never get away with that lightly. And I think that we can see kind of the same dealings with demons within the Catholic Church, especially when dealing with the rite of exorcism. And I think that we're going to wrap it up from there. Again, I cannot thank you enough for tuning in and listening. Um, if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out with, uh, to, uh, to me. Uh, you can uh, get me at southerndemonology at gmail.com. Otherwise, we're going to try to produce this show once every week. If it garners some interest, then that frequency may go up. But uh, otherwise, I hope you enjoyed it, and we will catch you next week. Have a good one. This has been Southern Demonology. Please feel free to contact us at southerndemonology at gmail.com. We hope that you join us again for our next episode.